This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Thousands of athletes, officials, and reporters traveling to China for the upcoming Winter Olympics risk having their online communications hacked through the official app for the event. That's what internet security researchers from the organization Citizen Lab in Canada are warning after an investigation into the My 2022 app. For the past two decades, the Citizen Lab at the University of Toronto has uncovered a seemingly unending list of troubling surveillance technologies, software vulnerabilities, and technological misuse. Led by Professor Ron Diebert, it has a well-earned reputation for breaking stories that attract immediate attention worldwide and often result in fast action from tech giants unaware that their systems may be vulnerable to attack. For his remarkable work, Professor Diebert has won an incredible array of awards and accolades, including the Order of Ontario and the EFF's Pioneer Award. In 2020, he delivered the Massey Lectures, based on his book for the lectures, Reset, Reclaiming the Internet for Civil Society. Professor Diebert joins me on the podcast to talk about the Citizen Lab, his work, and the threat of what he calls despotism as a service, where spyware is used to target journalists, activists, and civil society groups. Ron, welcome to the podcast. Well, Michael, it's my pleasure to be here. I I think so much of your work as a colleague, and I learn so much when I listen to your show. So thank you for having me. Oh, it's so nice of you to say, you know, there's been a number of Citizen Lab members and affiliates who've come on the podcast. And so it's a great honor to have you join. You've been outspoken on an issue that you've termed despotism as a service, a play on the software as a service. And I want to explore what you found at the Citizen Lab and a little bit how you think we can address some of it. But before we do that, for those that are unfamiliar, and hopefully there aren't many because you've had such a profound impact, but for those who are unfamiliar with the Citizen Lab, can you talk a bit about yourself and and the work that happens at the lab? Sure. So I'm a professor of political science, cross-appointed with the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. And I founded the Citizen Lab. Actually, it's uh, we just passed our 20th anniversary, so in, in 2001. And uh, the original idea uh, for the lab was really as a project. Uh, I put in a proposal to the Ford Foundation for the Citizen Lab. The idea was to uh, bring together researchers uh, who have different skills, come from different disciplinary ba- backgrounds. And in the early days, especially the technical disciplines like computer science and engineering science to do evidence-based research on what I broadly can call information controls from a human rights perspective and doing it on a global level. Um, so the mixed methods evidence-based research is really at the core of what we do. We're not a advocacy organization or an activist group, although we do some high-level policy and, and legal strategic engagement where, where it seems appropriate, um, we, we really take seriously this idea of uh, doing a kind of adversarial uh, research. And one way it's been described that I think gets at what we do and the mission of the Citizen Lab is we act as a kind of counterintelligence for civil society. I used this language uh, very early on when I founded the lab, and there was really no basis to say that. There was a lot of hubris behind that that remark, but um, more aspirational than anything back then. 
Um, but I, I, I think now we're kind of fulfilling that role for better or for worse. And the idea there was that governments have uh, both an intelligence and, and counterintelligence capacity typically, and many private companies do as well, but who's looking out for civil society broadly understood. And it made sense to me um, to approach it that way, um, almost as an, an, an analog to what uh, government intelligence agencies do from the ground up, watching the watchers, so to speak. And it also struck me that the university, generally speaking, is such an appropriate place to do this. Um, you know, universities in principle are set up to encourage this type of research that is in the public interest, that's not afraid of speaking truth to power on the basis of very careful, methodical, evidence-based, peer-reviewed research. Um, I'll just say one final thing. We work in a number of different areas. Um, the one we're gonna talk about today is very prominent, but it's not the only one. Uh, it's around targeted espionage and especially some of the uh, private security firms that are facilitating targeted espionage against global civil society. We also do a lot of work on security and privacy of mobile applications, especially in the context of, of mainland China. We have a team that really focuses almost solely on China-based social media apps, uh, tearing them apart, reverse engineering them, looking for evidence of censorship and surveillance. And in fact, uh, just uh, two days ago from this recording, um, we published a, a major report uncovering uh, serious security vulnerabilities in the Beijing Winter Olympics app. Um, and we have a team that also focuses on transparency and accountability around the public and private sector in Canada. Most of that group are policy analysts and people with a legal background. Um, and you're familiar with their work. You've had a few of those folks on your show before. And then we have another team that looks broadly at internet censorship worldwide, kind of drawing on network measurement techniques from engineering science to map access to information worldwide. Yeah, no, it's a, a truly remarkable team and, and it's it's really incredible to see sort of that early vision come to fruition in the way that you've just described. Now, the, the, the research and that work that you do so often lands on the proverbial front page of media around the world. You mentioned the, the story just this week as we record this uh, about the apps in China and the Beijing Olympics. It, it's striking that a number of the stories have involved uh, the use of spyware to surveil on individuals, particularly uh, journalists and activists. Can you talk a little bit about some of the things that you've uncovered? Sure. So this area of work for us goes back uh, now about 12 years. Um, we were aware, of course, that the governments were uh, using the internet, uh, broadly speaking, and telecommunications networks to try to spy on their adversaries. And uh, you, you'll probably recall back in 2009, we published a pretty big report called the GhostNet Report, Tracking GhostNet, in which we uncovered a, a China-based global cyber espionage campaign. Uh, our investigation there started um, with concerns brought to our attention by the Office of His Holiness the Dalai Lama and the Tibetan government in exile and other Tibetans based in Dharamsala, India. And we you know, did this investigation, uncovered this massive espionage network and um, that really opened our eyes uh, to this more offensive style of trying to control information and, and neutralize some of the activism 
around global civil society. Of course, shortly thereafter, not long afterwards anyway, uh, the Arab Spring happened. And this really had a big demonstration effect in ways that I think uh, were different than many in the public drew lessons from that event. So for most people, they looked at this event as a dramatic example of how digital technologies and social media are leading to a new type of empowerment, a, a kind of people power coming from, from Twitter and Facebook and so on. Well, the, the autocrats, the dictators, the, the people in positions of power and authority in security services drew a completely different lesson. Uh, they said, we must never let this happen again. And they turned to their um, advisors and, and security chiefs and say, how do we make that happen? And waiting for them was a, a very robust, in some cases, quite sophisticated surveillance marketplace, private security firms that are basic, basically providing uh, government agencies with tools to monitor uh, whatever they perceive to be as a threat. And one component of that marketplace is what we call spyware. Um, so this is a service that is provided to governments to essentially hack into devices. Of course, we all carry around devices with us at all times these days. They're highly revealing, intrusive by design. Uh, they follow us around. They're like windows into our lives. And so it's very uh, tempting uh, for uh, adversaries to get into those devices. Well, that's what these companies do. They provide this service uh, to government clients. Um, the marketplace as a whole, however, is almost entirely unregulated. Uh, my colleague, David Kay, who's a former UN Special Rapporteur, described it as a wild west. And I think he's right. Um, and so not surprisingly, what we have seen uh, as a result of our research is one case after another, uh, really building into a crescendo these days of horrible abuses of power uh, connected to uh, spyware probably the most famous of them being um, the uh, people around the murdered Washington Post journalist, Jamal Khashoggi, uh, all, many of whom we verified had their devices hacked. Um, so th this is truly a despotism as a service. And I believe that it's contributing to a disturbing descent into authoritarian authoritarianism we're seeing and a spread of digital transnational repression that many people are remarking on and a really chilling effect on global civil society. So if you go back to the Arab Spring, it's almost like 180 degrees in the opposite direction now. Um, digital technologies have really become a kind of hot potato. Um, we've seen major psychological trauma connected to being hacked or the fear of being hacked. And it's really kind of slowing down everything, uh, gumming up the machinery of global civil society, if you will. Well, it's, uh, I mean, to, to hear it described that way, we're so often accustomed to thinking about spyware in the context of you know, digital advertising, but this is, of course, mm -hmm. something that, you know, far more disturbing and nefarious. Can you talk a little bit about how it, how it works? You know, how do these companies manage to, to hack into to cell phones and create the kind of havoc that you just described? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, this is a very lucrative industry. So most of the firms are valued, you know, the successful ones are, are valued well in excess of billion, billion dollars or more. And so they are able to hire some uh, uh, very well-trained engineers uh, whose job it is to spend their entire day 
looking for that particular flaw in operating systems or applications or devices that they can exploit and package up to their government clients. And um, in the case of companies based in Israel, just to, because the companies there are, are quite prominent in this space for a very particular reason, uh, a lot of them are actually graduates of Israel's own Signals Intelligence Agency, Unit 8200. And um, there's a particular entrepreneurial spirit around service in Unit 8200. Uh, you go through your military service and then you're actually encouraged to go work for these startups. And, and um, there's much made of the uh, Israeli cybersecurity commercial scene. Um, so these are very capable people. And um, you know, the, what they're able to do now is, is really quite phenomenal. So in the early days when we were investigating this area and the market was just emerging, typically to get spyware on a target's phone, you had to trick them into doing something. So we saw a lot of uh, socially uh, engineered text messages or emails being sent to targets with some kind of malicious link. And we're familiar with that sort of thing from the world of cybercrime, of course. Some of these would be very well-crafted, playing on people's fears and emotions. And I've seen some good ones that uh, we can talk about. Others, maybe not so much, depending on who the government client is. Um, but lately, the, the uh, latest version of Pegasus, which is the spyware that's marketed by Israel-based NSO group, has got to the point uh, that it was able to infect uh, any device without any interaction on the part of the target. This is known as a zero-click exploit. Um, we discovered such an exploit that was effective at the time against every single Apple product in the world, every Mac OS, iOS, and watch OS operating system. Uh, that's known in industry jargon as a zero day. Uh, it's, it means an exploit or a flaw in the, in the software that even Apple's engineers didn't know about. Uh, so we disclosed that to Apple. And you'll recall in September 2021, they issued an emergency security patch for this. Um, but the big takeaway here is this is a like a the digital spying equivalent of a nuclear weapon is the way that I think about it. To have the ability to just uh, target any device in the world that may be vulnerable to this particular exploit, and you know about this and the vendors don't, uh, you're putting an extraordinary power in the hands of some really nasty people. Um, and hence, that's why we're seeing this, you know, really epidemic of harms worldwide that we're tracking. Yeah, no, as I uh, speak to you in front of my Macintosh with my iPhone beside me and my Apple Watch on my wrist, uh, that's a pretty scary proposition, what you've just described. How have companies like Apple responded to the kinds of threats that you've just described? Well, we've done a number of these responsible security disclosures to different vendors at different times, and we've worked with some of the platforms. Of course, you know, as a research group and myself as a, an academic, like you, I'm sure, you know, I have to remain at arm's length from the platforms and be at times quite critical of different parts of their businesses. Um, so it's a tricky kind of pragmatic relationship we have to have with their threat intelligence teams. Um, some of them are more responsive than others. Um, but in a few high profile cases, uh, when these issues have been brought to their attention, of course they have a, a business interest in preventing that type of exploitation from happening. 
So re really remarkably, we've done two of these with Apple. Uh, one in 2016, when we first discovered Pegasus, um, this came to us from a human rights defender in the United Arab Emirates named Ahmad Mansour, who's sadly in prison uh, right now in solitary confinement. He sent us these text messages that he received. He didn't click on them. And we did in a laboratory setting and infected our own iPhone, made the disclosure to Apple. I remember those texts came to us August 11th. Apple issued a security patch August 25th. And then in the latest version, it was a similar time frame. This is in 2021 uh, in September, maybe eight days later, they issued an emergency security patch. I spoke to the head of security at Apple who said that they worked around the clock and I believe them. Um, so they, most of the companies have been very responsible trying to flush these uh, actors out. And I, I think they've come to recognize all of them that this is a, a major problem, not just for their own companies, but for uh, democracy as a whole. Apple uh, sued NSO Group as has uh, WhatsApp and Facebook prior to that. And we'll see what happens. You know, the court case is uh, unfolding. It takes a lot of time. But just the mere fact that they uh, started this litigation, I think is very, um, very important because it, it sends a message to this marketplace and to some of the gov government clients, you just can't get away with this. So we, we like to see that sort of thing. And Apple also, um, uh, mentioned in, in the announcement of their lawsuit and their and some of the other things uh, that they're doing, that they would issue notifications to every single civil society victim. And this is why we're so busy these days at the Citizen Lab, because they did do that. Uh, we helped craft that message with, with them. We gave them some guidance. And uh, what they have done, to use an analogy, uh, I think is appropriate here, is they've shaken a tree uh, worldwide and all of these victims have been falling out and uh, citizen lab researchers, researchers at Amnesty International, at Access Now have been chasing them down and helping them out and trying to expose what has happened to them. And that's why you may have seen there, there are these national scandals all over the world happening as a result of the notifications that Apple has done. That's just one company uh, acting in that way. Um, if, if more companies did that, that would be great. And of course, we need governments uh, to, to step in here as well, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Yeah, no, I, I want to get to some of the policy solutions you've, you've alluded to, lawsuits, and uh, we'll get into what governments can do. I, before we do that, though, you know, someone listening to this might well say, you know, Apple's got, got more money than anybody, uh, and clearly some of the very best people in the world. How is it that that, that a lab at U of T is able to discover things that elude uh, a company like an Apple or some of the other really large players. Can you talk a bit about how Citizen Lab goes about finding these things when it appears that many others don't or can't? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, you know, I should say that we have a very small but very talented team. And over time, you know, success breeds success and people have been attracted to the mission, I think, um, a lot of people who care about human rights and democracy see the value of what the Citizen Lab is doing. They understand that there's a, a possible place for them. Um, so I've been able to recruit some remarkably skilled, dedicated ethical researchers. And, and over time, you know, you put a lot of focus on, on this mission, um, you get better at it. And I, I will say this, um, you know, we live at, in a time 
in an era when everyone leaves uh, a kind of digital exhaust. And that includes government security agencies and even spyware companies such as NSO Group and others, even though they go to great lengths to hide what they're doing, they can't hide entirely. There's always some forensic evidence that you can use. And you know this gets back to the founding of the Citizen Lab. One of the things I was struck by as a social scientist was that, geez, there are all these amazing techniques and skills that are being used in computer science and engineering science, mostly for kind of technical functional purposes. What if you took those skills in the same academic setting, but focus them on these very sensitive political questions that speak to issues around geopolitics and the security of civil society? And it just goes to show that you, you can have some amazing results uh, if you're careful and disciplined. Um, we also, I, I think one has to recognize that it's a matter of priority. So, um, you know, when it comes to government security agencies, one of the beefs I've had is that uh, when people talk about cybersecurity, they're thinking mostly about government networks and threats to government networks or threats to Fortune 500 companies. And th those agencies, uh, they're very well resourced. They can go out and, and purchase their own, um, you know, threat intelligence services from companies that will help defend their networks. But civil society, there's a kind of structural inequity. Um, most NGOs, especially in the global south, you know, if they have any tech capacity, it's like one poor person who's, you know, one day fending off China-based cyber espionage and the next day trying to get the printer to work. Um, so, you know, if the priorities shifted a bit, I think many more agencies, many more private companies would see uh, what we are seeing. It's not like we have some secret sauce. In fact, I published an article uh, on this topic with a couple of colleagues of mine, John Lindsay and Leonard, Leonard Mashmeyer, where we proved that um, when you look at the threat intelligence industry reports that come out from companies like Mandiant, FireEye, Trend Micro, and so on, systematically they um, give lower profile to civil society targets. Um, they will be very uh, careful and methodical about identifying risks and, and uh, operations against big companies and big government agencies. And then they'll usually have this like other bucket that they call NGOs or something like that. And the reason is obvious, those aren't lucrative potential paying clients and their threat intelligence reports are basically marketing brochures. So it's not like they couldn't be doing what we are doing. In fact, we use very similar methods to what a lot of those companies do in a different setting. It's just that they have different priorities. Yeah, well, I think many in civil society are obviously grateful that uh, there's at least someone that has has them as a priority. Now, you have a, a recent piece out uh, called Protecting Society from Surveillance Spyware. Uh, in other words, trying to take a look at this issue that we've been talking about and think about some of the mm -hmm. solutions. Uh, can you talk a bit about some of the kinds of policy approaches that that might at least put a dent into some of the kinds of activities you've described? Sure, yeah. First of all, I will say that this, when you objectively stand back and look at this space, it is a, a, a pretty depressing picture. Um, so, as I said before, there's there are very few, if all, re regulations around uh, the export and sale of commercial spyware technology. 
And even in those settings where you do have like licensing arrangements that have to happen, such as in Israel, uh, the Israeli spyware companies exports have to go through a review by the Israeli Ministry of Defense. It's very, um, you know, uh, uh, encouraging uh, rather than, say, imposing some kind of restraint or due diligence. In fact, it appears to be the case that it's used as a as a byproduct of strategic foreign policy engagement, like a carrot that the government government can use when it wants to sweeten relationships with potential other countries. Um, so, you know, that's a very hard thing to change. Every government has a dog in this race, if you will. Even if you look at our own signals intelligence agency, as you know, they're mandated to hack abroad as part of uh, foreign espionage operations. Um, we hope that they're doing that in a way that is accountable um, and that somebody is watching over it. That, that's another debate that we could have. Um, but the reason I bring this up is, you know, they typically don't do that sort of thing in house. They too contract from private companies, almost certainly not NSO group, but companies like them. Um, and typically the, the sector that we're talking about here, which is signals intelligence, foreign espionage, clandestine operations, those are the, the type of activities that government's involved in that are the least transparent, the most uh, hidden in the shadows. Uh, typically, uh, this, the agencies undertaking these operations are uh, the least accountable, and in a lot of countries, not accountable at all, especially in authoritarian regimes where you know many countries are trending towards these days. So how do you fix this? This is a very difficult problem, and it would be very easy to just throw up your arms and say, well, um, and I've seen colleagues do this, say this is pointless. You know, we're just unearthing these these um, uh, cases of abuse one after the other. What else is going to happen? I don't believe that. I think there are some positive small steps that can happen. To give you a few examples, you know, we just talked about the, the litigation. I think the private sector has a big responsibility here uh, to protect their users and to prevent this type of malfeasance uh, by suing those companies for misuse of their platforms. I think they could bring some awareness and accountability to this space, especially if financial penalties are imposed and, and the and the litigation succeeds, uh, that will create a chilling effect on investors. As I said before, most of these companies are very lucrative. They're owned by pension funds and private equity firms. Uh, you know, a massive lawsuit uh, would uh, maybe create some kind of chilling effect there. And of course, the companies can do more in terms of like what Apple did and what WhatsApp did before notifying victims, be proactive about devoting resources to researching this type of malfeasance on their networks and better protecting users through things like, you know, requiring two-factor authentication, notifying people that they've been targeted, uh, giving resources uh, to groups that can research and, and help advocate around the space. And then when it comes to governments, I think I'd be curious to hear what you think about this, but I think Canada can do a lot here. I, I think that the fact that we're you know, implicated in this marketplace. When you, you might even describe it, frankly, as Frankenstein's monster has come home to haunt us um, because there have been Canadians who have been attacked in this way using this sophisticated type of technology that has its roots in, in Western industrialized signals intelligence agencies. I think we have a responsibility to do something about it. 
One thing I think that might be accomplishable would be to uh, focus on procurement policies. So it may be unrealistic to say to the communication security establishment, hey, you can't do this. I don't think that's realistic, but we might be able to say to them, okay, if you're gonna contract with private uh, vendors of surveillance technologies, maybe you can impose some requirements on your pro procurement so that they have to meet a certain threshold of due diligence around business and human rights principles. That wouldn't solve the, the entire problem globally, but it would set a normative standard, and especially if other countries followed suit. And then lastly, I think we need stronger export controls. Um, you know, there are tools in the government toolkit. Um, we saw the Biden administration, uh, the Commerce Department, um, just a few months ago, put NSO Group, Candiro, which is another firm, Citizen Lab Exposed, and a, and a few other hack for hire firms on their designated entity list, which means that uh, U.S. individuals and businesses can't do business with those groups on that list without a special exemption. That immediately had a, a dramatic impact on NSO's viability. Uh, Moody's, uh, the credit rating agency, downgraded NSO group as a result. And it created a, a cast a kind of chilling effect over the spyware marketplace, I'm told. Um, so if we could do things like that, while also um, creating rules around our, our own export controls. One thing I've been astonished by is that there are Canadian companies in this space, maybe not exactly doing this, the same sort of thing as NSO Group, but we know that there are companies that do kind of cyber forensics for law enforcement, uh, companies that do deep packet inspection, companies that provide internet filtering services. Those are all dual use technologies. They can be seriously abused and yet there is no uh, control by the Canadian government over the export of that sort of technology in the way that there would be for say the export of tanks or weapons. I think that needs to change because the harms, although you can't kill somebody with software, uh, you can certainly kill someone uh, as we've seen when you can spy on them and figure out where they are and what where their vulnerabilities are. Um, so I think the Canadian government can really step up um, and and set an example here. Yeah, no, that's interesting. You know, the governments, and it can be conservative or liberal, often, at least when they're in opposition, talk about cleaning these kinds of things up. I mean, it feels this feels a little reminiscent of some of the access to information and federal privacy laws that when in opposition parties say they're determined to go ahead and bring greater transparency and privacy protection, and once they get into power, some of those promises seem to slip away. And I do wonder a little bit, once they've got internally pressures from some of the very groups, that departments and agencies that you said make use of these technologies, whether there will be real world pushback and they say internally, we don't want you to do this, or if you do it, we want to ensure that our access remains unrestricted. And so, you know, yeah. is there a fear that the impact is that uh, it becomes open season for government and government agencies to use these technologies, even while they say, well, we're doing our best to stop the private sector from gaining access? Yeah, I, uh, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, as I said before, the, this market has its roots in, in the United States, in the West, in the five eyes. Um, this, they were the pioneers. And still have the you know by volume the most resources to devote towards this sector um very lucrative contracts coming out of companies that um 
that work with the Pentagon and the NSA and so forth. Um, but I, I can see the tide kind of changing. Um, you know, maybe I'm being overly optimistic here, but uh, the Biden White House has uh, made it very clear that they consider this market to be not just a threat to human rights, but a national security threat. Something that we had been warning them about, actually. Um, I've been saying for a long time that uh, it's only a matter of time before diplomats and others um, devices being hacked connected to this industry will come to light. And sure enough, it did. Apple notified several diplomats in, in sub-Saharan Africa who work for the United States State Department whose phones were hacked with Pegasus. And, and to my astonishment, the um, intelligence community issued a, an alert, I think it was about a month ago now, um, warning uh, about the risks of commercial mercenary spyware and the threat it poses to journalists, human rights defenders, and so on. Um, it, you know, I couldn't have written this any differently if I was tasked to do it, frankly. It was, it was really remarkable to see this language. Sure, it's, it's rhetoric, um, but I think rhetoric matters in this case. It, it starts a momentum. And um, I think the, the, oh, this is where the media coverage becomes important. Uh, when one case after another of abuse and country-level scandals are percolating up, um, governments hopefully take notice. And you know there are some advocacy groups that do a great job in this area. Um, Access Now, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International are all advocating for the type of policy measures that I talked about. So let's see what happens. I, I remain optimistic that um, um, some progress will be made here. Well, that's encouraging. And, uh, you know, as, as we recount what you've done over now two decades, uh, there, there's, you know, you've you've managed to to beat the odds, I think, repeatedly in, in identifying things that others weren't able to and to put this issue on the public's radar screen and uh, on the policy agenda in a way that uh, it simply wasn't even just a few years ago. So I think we're all grateful, certainly for your work. And I'm particularly grateful for you to uh, take the time to come on and, and talk about talk about that work and, and the kinds of things that we ought to be thinking about and doing in the, the months and years ahead. Thank you so much, Michael. It's a pleasure to talk to you always. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.